Let's go Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some uh, physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is really, really simple. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of really important stuff, but the most important thing He uses it for is to teach, uh, teach us about Himself, to reveal Himself to His people. And Listen, we want you to know God, and if the Bible is the way that you meet Him, you not having a Bible, it sounds like a problem to me, and so we can fix that today by sending you home with a cheap paperback Bible. You start reading it, I'll call it a win. Jeremiah 29. If you're new to the Bible, Jeremiah is in the Old Testament. It's uh, kind of the, the first of two sections, Old Testament and New Testament. It's just a little right of center. So if you hold your Bible like this and kind of go a little right of center, you're kind of close to Jeremiah. If you see the Psalms, go to the right. If you see Ezekiel, we went just a little bit too far and go back to the left. But Jeremiah, most of you though are probably just searching it into your phone app. So Jeremiah is spelled J-E-R-E-M-I-A-H. Make sure you get the H. All right, Jeremiah chapter 29. So that clip uh, is uh, a little thing that we got going on. We kicked off a brand new little lighthearted summer series last week uh, that that just, I, I, I think it's going to be fun. I'm having a good time with it at least. I hope that y'all are too. Um, I don't think that means what you think that means. How many of y'all have seen The Princess Bride before? Okay, that's a lot of hands. Good. Not only is it just clean fun, like, like when you have a church movie night, you and you don't want to do the cartoon, like, The Princess Bride is basically your best option, all right? And so, like, we're actually going to use it for a church movie night in August. But to set all that up, we got this little clip. Now, those of you who have seen the movie, what's your favorite line? Probably something Inigo Montoya says, right? My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to... Yeah. All right, those of you who think that the best line is inconceivable, right? There's some of you line is, marriage is what brings us together today. And like I said last week, those of you who haven't seen the movie think I'm absolutely loco. Um, but here's the deal. This is my favorite line. Inigo Montoya sees the word inconceivable being used, hears it being used incorrectly for the umpteenth time, and so he's just ready to call it out. And he goes, uh, you keep using that word. I don't think that means what you think that means. And I told you last week that this is my favorite line for a reason. Now, you're allowed to have any favorite line that you want out of a movie, obviously so, but I tend to pick things on purpose in my life. And the reason why this is my favorite line is because I find myself thinking it in my head and sometimes accidentally out loud all the time. You ever been through that? Can you relate to that? Like there's sometimes you're going, there's this thing and people are misusing that thing and misappropriating that thing and misrepresenting that thing or maybe misquoting that thing and it ends up getting twisted into something that it was never meant to be. Can you relate to that? And you find yourself thinking, I don't think they're using that right. I don't think that means what they think that means. And sometimes when my, my mouth moves faster than my brain, it comes out. All right? I don't think that means what you think that means. And there are all kinds of things in our culture that we do this to. Misconceptions are all over the place. Uh, it, in fact, it doesn't take long to, to begin to think through them. And so last week I shared with you some of the most common or some of the funniest ones to me that stood out. And I've actually got some more for you this week. You ready for them? 
Number one, despite what you were always told growing up, mama doesn't always know best because there is absolutely no need to wait 30 minutes to go swimming after eating. Not a bit. That's the myth though, right? You got to wait 30 minutes after lunch before you can jump back in the pool or else you're going to get cramps and you're going to drown, right? That's the way the myth goes. And the reason for that is actually kind of scientific and there's, there's some logic at least a little bit to that because the story goes that when, after you eat a big meal, your body is processing that and then goes, oh, we need to send extra blood flow to the, dige- the digestive organs. And so that blood flow then prevents you from doing strenuous activity in other ways and so you're exhausted and therefore you get cramps and you drown. That's how the logic goes. While it's true that your body does provide extra blood for digestive purposes, it doesn't provide so much that you're at risk of exhaustion and cramps and all that kind of stuff. And so, do the American thing. Shove another hot dog in your mouth and head for the diving board. It's the American way, man. Number two, even though espresso may be the best way to drink coffee, an average cup of drip coffee actually has more caffeine than a double espresso does. Some of you go, really? A 12-ounce cup of coffee, and for those of you who speak Starbucks vocabulary, that's a tall, all right? So the small on the Starbucks menu, a tall, is a 12-ounce cup of coffee. That has more milligrams of caffeine in that cup than a double espresso, than a 2- to 3-ounce double espresso. It just can't compete with the larger cup of coffee. Now, like even an 8-ounce cup of coffee has more caffeine in it. So really what we're talking about, though, is a volume issue. The caffeine is concentrated in espresso. There's more caffeine per ounce of liquid in an espresso than there is in drip coffee. But when you have an 8-ounce cup of coffee or a 12-ounce cup of coffee versus 2 to 3 ounces, that's how the math works, right? You just can't get as much. But if you wanted to start drinking the same volume of espresso as you do of normal coffee, you can start just pounding quadruple espresso shots every morning to make up that eight ounces, and then you'll have jet fuel. (laughs) You'll jump right to hyperspeed, but you're the one that's going to have to deal with the long-term consequences of that. Party on, man. Number three. Here's one that I sometimes get worked up about. The word Xmas is not, and I'm going to repeat this for emphasis, is not a secular attempt to remove Christ from Christmas. That X is not an X at all. It's the Greek letter chi. Chi. Chi is the first letter in the Greek word Christos, or in our English, Christ. And so chi is literally an abbreviation that theologians have used for over a thousand years to abbreviate the name, title, Christ. And so Xmas is really chimus, which is a goodwill abbreviation for Christmas. And I get it. Most people don't know that. A lot of people, when they use it, have no idea that that's what they mean. But even if, even if someone was trying to scrub Jesus off of everything, like he's still there. They don't win because that's his letter. It's his. It belongs to him, right? Even if they're like a meanie McMean face and they're trying to get rid of Jesus out of everything, Jesus still wins because, hear me, Jesus always wins. That's how the system works. He kind of set it up that way. But as you can tell, I never get worked up about that. I got a fourth one for you, though. Despite the fact that the trope has been used in just about every cartoon I've ever watched, 
Bulls don't get angry at seeing the color red. They just don't. They have what's called dichromatic vision. That means they can only see blues and yellows. Literally every other color is in the grayscale. Which means bulls can't even see the color red. It just looks gray to them. So why then do bulls get angry at the matador waving the red cape? It's because they're a bull and they get angry at pretty much everything. <laughs> if you stand in their pen waving stuff around looking, looking like an idiot, they're going to do something about it. It could be a blue cape, it could be a green saxophone, it could be a purple fish. It doesn't matter. The problem is you. Get out of their pen. That's how it works. You stay out of the bull's face, they, they're, they're a lot happier with you. So there are all kinds of misconceptions in our world, but the reality is that, man, a lot of the times, a lot of times there are a lot of misconceptions, significant ones even, inside the church. There are a lot of things that people attribute to the Bible that either aren't there at all or, or are there, but not at all the way that they're being used. They're, they're misquoted and misrepresented. And, and we learned last week that the word, the term for that, that action is a proof text. A proof text is when you make something mean something else by removing it from its immediate context. By removing it from its immediate surroundings and reframing it, repackaging it as, as, as something that it's not. All right? So more often than not, a proof text is really just a verse standing by itself without its neighbors used in a way that it wasn't originally packaged in. And we could probably all point to secular examples of this happening in our world, right? right? Like, turn on the news tomorrow. Like, that's just kind of how the world works. Things get taken out of context all the time, but, but Christians can be just as guilty of it sometimes. We can be just as guilty of it, especially when it comes to the Bible. Sometimes it's done intentionally by people that are trying to, to be underhanded, trying to undermine God's word. But most of the time, though, most of the time it's not intentional at all. It's the fact that we're just lazy and don't read our Bibles well. And so, whether it's on purpose or not, the end result is always the same. It's misinformation. Falsehood is spread, and, and that's a problem for people who claim to follow a God who calls himself the truth. Like if we're going to be a faith family, a church family that, that loves and worships Jesus, a, a one who literally called himself truth with a capital T, maybe, just maybe, we ought to be serious about the truth in here, right? And so we flesh them out and we do the work. And, and so over the course of this little summer series, I want to look at some of the most egregious examples of proof texting in the Bible and just kind of set the story straight. I want to, in a lighthearted but loving way, truthful way, point to the verse and say, hey, you keep using that verse, but I don't, I don't think that means what you think that means. Sound good? So who's our offender today? Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. Say hello to the merchandise verse. That's what it is. Whether you're having a bad day or you're graduating from high school or you're just trying to figure out what God's will for your life is, what your next step ought to be, Jeremiah has got a verse for you. And this is the verse that we can quote back to ourselves whenever we're having a dark, bad day, right? This is the verse that kind of brings us comfort. And for good reason, it's quite comforting, right? Of course God wants good for his people. Of course he does. Of course he's working out all things. Like, does anybody want to argue against that? 
Does anybody want to argue against the idea that, that God sees the, the end from the beginning and is working out all things for the good of those who love him? Like, is anybody going to like, plant their flag and go, nope, God doesn't do that? Of course God does these things. I mean, those are true statements. God does give blessings and prosperity and future blessing for his people. That's true. Except for the, for the fact that our version of blessings... And God's version of blessings aren't always exactly the same thing. But whatever, I'm, I'm sure that'll never come up, right? And so in the Christian subculture that we've created for, for ourselves, Jeremiah's words here, man, they, they've kind of become sort of an incantation that we repeat back to ourselves. This something that we repeat back to ourselves in the hopes that, well, on that dark, lonely, bad day, Everything will just go away soon and God will bring blessings again. Right? That's kind of the way we, we treat it. We even sometimes use it in a way of, uh, of ignoring the problems in front of us because it's obviously abnormal for the life of a Christian and surely will be over soon. But you don't have to take my word for it. Just like last week, I did another quick Google search. And here's what I found with minimal effort. First up are the coffee mugs because every good merchandise verse needs a coffee mug. Google Shopping, that's a way you can search on Google. You can click the Shopping tab. Google search, uh, Shopping Search had several hundred entries for a mug that had Jeremiah 29 on it. You could search for the verse itself, and all these things would come up. You could search for the words of the verse. All these things would come up. And they, they really kind of target all different kind of demographics, right? you got mugs just about every style. Like you see up there, the blue one on the second row. It's got a little spoon that fits nicely into the handle. Kind of cute, right? And you got, you got mugs that are marketed to moms. you got mugs that are marketed to, to graduates. But my absolute favorite ones were the ones that were marketed that, that you could personalize. You could make it have your name on there. So it said, for I know the plans that I have for Stephen, declares the Lord. That way, when I drink my coffee every morning, I can remind myself that God delights in me. And if I put a quadruple shot of espresso in there, the lesson will really stick. But hey, maybe you're not much of a coffee drinker. Maybe, don't worry, we got you covered. Maybe you're more of the outdoor person. You can get it on a, on a compass. So if you get lost in the woods, you're not really lost because God has a wonderful plan for your future and your hope, right? But maybe you don't do outdoors. Maybe you're more of a thinker. You can get it on a nice, pretty teal journal. Maybe you like to write down your thoughts. Well, God's got a plan for your thoughts, right? Maybe you like to build stuff. You can get it laser engraved on a hammer. $39.99 on Amazon, plus shipping if you don't have Prime, which, by the way, you should totally have Amazon Prime. All right? But if you don't, $39.99 plus shipping, laser engraved on your very own personal hammer. And while you're at it, pick up a pop socket for your teenage daughter. It is not an overstatement at all to say that we literally slap this verse on everything. It's all over the place. And we do it because it's a verse that, on the surface, it encourages us. It, it makes us feel better about how life is going when we're down. Like, like, if we're in the middle of a storm, who doesn't want to remember that God has wonderful plans for their future? Who doesn't want to be reminded of that? But it's not just merchandise. For others, it's more of a life verse. You can get it as a tattoo. Like, you think you have a life verse, but you're not th that committed like, like when you're ready to really double down and say, this is my life first, that's how you go, right? Until then, you're just a poser, 
right? Organizations can even have it as their theme verse. This is the website for Dallas Baptist University, my alma mater. It is the theme verse for Dallas Baptist University. It was on every piece of paper that school ever handed to me, and there were a lot of those pieces of paper. It was recited over and over again every week after chapel as kind of an evocation. I'm not sure what the evocation was for, but there you go. It's the theme verse of the institution. And I'll leave you to think whatever you want about it because I definitely have some thoughts. But listen, though, all of this is child's play. Because the real movers and shakers in the Christian world figure out how to make God's word work for them. This is a thumbnail for a video on a website, Vimeo, that's pitching a pyramid scheme. They use Jeremiah 29.11 in their sales curriculum. Because apparently, God's wonderful plan for your future includes recruiting as many people as possible so everybody else gets paid. Right? That's how the system works. So as we said last week, last week, this is how our verse gets used in our camp a lot of the times. This is what the Christian subculture at large tends to do with this verse. So, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Gets, and it gets trotted out all the time as a make me feel good about myself when my day is down kind of thing. Just, just, just be patient because God will turn the ship around soon and it will bring blessings again. That's the way this verse is used. There may be hardships at the moment, but just hang in there, buddy, because God's got your back. It's the, it's the hang-in-there-cat poster of the Christian world. As we said last week, there's, there's no distinction between what's going on in here and what's going on out there when it comes to the capability of proof texting. If you and I are just as fallen and just as capable of blind spots as the rest of the world around us, is it possible that maybe there's a major blind spot here? If it, can, if it can be used so easily for all of these different things without people batting an eye. If it can be on the coffee mug and the hammer and the school institution and the pyramid scheme, the, 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 all of these things, the multi-level marketing scheme, without anybody going, you know what, I don't think that's right. I think they may have got something wrong there and misunderstood something. Maybe we've got a blind spot somewhere that we need to pay better attention to, right? So let's look at how the Bible actually frames... Jeremiah 29, 11 this morning. And to do that, we need to start in verse 1. Many of you probably have a superscript above verse 1 that reads, Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, right? So what's that about? Well, the structure of the book of Jeremiah isn't always linear. It's mostly linear, linear but there's some times that he kind of loops back on the story a little bit. Uh, but most of what's occurring is happening either right before or in the very, very first parts of what Christians call the Babylonian exile. God's people are far from him. There's a lot of sin and disobedience in the camp. And God has made it clear to them that he wants them to repent and return to them, return to him. He's also made it very, very clear what will happen if they don't. That he will raise up another nation, a warring nation on their neighbor, and wipe them out. He will bring judgment upon his people. And so God's people, they're called the nation of Judah by this point in history, and they don't repent. So God raises up the empire of Babylon, and they come in and overthrow them. 
Over a few different waves of attack stretching multiple years, Jeremiah, um, Jerusalem, excuse me, Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed and the majority of the people are eventually carted off into slavery hundreds of miles away in Babylon. This is the case with uh, Daniel. Uh, if you know Daniel's story, the very first part of Daniel uh, plays out at the same time period as Jeremiah. Daniel is one of those groups of exiles that's carted off. Now, leading up to all of this brouhaha, Jeremiah was a prophet in Judah who spoke for God. The only problem, though, is that nobody listened at all. Like, nobody wanted to hear from Jeremiah. In fact, often they beat him up, stripped him naked, and robbed him of all of his stuff and left him in a ditch. Like, nobody was hearing it from Jeremiah. To make matters worse, though, there was another group of people in the camp, in the kingdom, who called themselves prophets who very much were not speaking for God. And the leaders all listened to them instead. And we learn about one of the main ones in chapter 28. His name is Hananiah. They're in the middle of the waves of attack and exiles are being taken. And Hananiah goes, hey, hey, don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. Nothing to see here. Everything's fine. God doesn't act this way on a regular basis. Uh, He's going to show old Nebuchadnezzar who's boss and everything will be over soon. We'll all be back home. Don't you worry. God's got this. That's what Hananiah says. And he makes a big show out of mocking Jeremiah as he says these words. There's a yoke that Jeremiah's been wearing around his neck to show that he's a servant of the Lord and God's bringing judgment. And Hananiah makes a show of taking that yoke off of him and smashing it on the ground. He makes a grand scheme of showing that he's the prophet that God is speaking through and not that puny little Jeremiah. And the leaders of Judah choose to listen to Hananiah because, I mean, why wouldn't they? Like if you're the leader and you got one guy saying doom and gloom and the other guy saying, don't worry, everything's going to be back to normal soon. Who are you going to pick to listen to? The leaders choose to listen to Hananiah. And so Hananiah and the other false prophets continue to lead God's people into deeper and deeper sin. The nation of Judah is in literal shambles right now. The city's on fire. There's a puppet king on the throne. Half the people are gone in exile with more leaving every day. And the leaders, religious leaders of the people are going, nothing to see here, everything's fine. Don't you worry, it'll all be back to normal soon. Just, just double down with what we were already doing, everything will be okay. And so in chapter 29, Jeremiah writes a letter to the leaders, the elders who had already been taken away from Jerusalem and sent to Babylon. They're in Babylon, he writes them a letter to let them know what God is doing and what they can expect while they're there. And in verse 1, he says this, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 2, This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, I think, and the son of Shaphan, and Gamaria, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That is a fun paragraph. I got an idea. How about next week we all take turns reading it out loud from the stage? Anybody up for that? So what do we see here? Well, we see that the letter's from Jeremiah, right? And who's the letter to? 
the leaders of the people who had been in exile. And he mentions three groups. He mentions the elders who had never listened to him by this point. He mentions the priests who were just as wicked and sinful as everybody else who was being taken away in the exile. And he mentions the prophets who we've already learned aren't really prophets at all. They're just people pleasers. So if you were responsible for writing this letter, what would your tone be? Like, how are you, how you writing this one down? Are you throwing any zingers in there? See, I told you so. Think you could speak graciously to those who set themselves up as your enemies or now seemingly get their just desserts? What would your tone be? In verse 4, Jeremiah begins his letter. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Verse 8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Okay, so right out of the gate, Jeremiah makes it explicitly clear that it is no accident at all that they're in Babylon right now. It's not, it, it's not some accident. Speaking on God's behalf, he, he speaks to the nation. He says, to the exiles whom I have sent. This is not some absent-minded oversight from a God who turned his back for a second going, where did they get off to? What happened? It's not some oversight, but listen, neither is it Neither is it some temporary victory of one of God's enemies. God's not looking at old King Nebuchadnezzar going, you win this round, you crafty fox, but I'll get you next time. No. Speaking to his own people, God says, I put you there. I put you there. Despite what the megalomaniac of an empire far away thinks about himself or likes to think about himself, I'm the one who puts you where you're at right now. It's by my hand. And because it's by my hand, here's what I want you to do while you spend your little time out there. That's what God is saying. And he tells them in verses 5 through 7 to do four things. Build houses, plant gardens, raise their families, and seek the welfare of the city. That's a pretty good to-do list, right? And there's also not a single one of those things on that to-do list that you do on a vacation. There's not a single thing in that list of items, those four to-do list items that you do if you're just biding your time somewhere waiting for the term to end. Those are generation-defining activities. If you're looking to get out of somewhere as quickly as possible, put in your six months, put in your two years, put in your whatever, none of these things are things that you're planning on doing. God tells a bunch of people who have just been carted off into slavery that they're going to be there a while. They should make themselves comfortable and get on with living. Might as well make yourself comfortable because you're going to spend multiple generations there in Babylon. 
He spells out some of those generations in verse 6. It says, take wives for yourself. That's one generation. Have kids and give them away in marriage. That's two generations. And he says, so that they can have kids. That's three generations in one verse. And since the primary audience of this letter is actually the elders of Judah, you can maybe safely add another generation to on the front end of that list. Multiple generations living and dying. What this definitely means is that the original audience of this letter is not leaving Babylon. They're going to die there. They're going to die there. They'll be long gone before God brings his people home. And if you're paying attention at all, that reality flies in the face of just about everything that we daydream a happily ever after being. Right? Wait a second, Woodard. I thought God's people were supposed to be the good guys of the Old Testament. God's people aren't supposed to live and die without resolution. They're supposed to have the happily ever after. They're supposed to have God sweep in as the great redeemer to rescue them out of bondage and slavery. That's the story, right? That's how it's supposed to go. God promises blessings for his people. And I've I've got a coffee mug that tells me so. Except for the fact that our version of blessing and God's version of blessing aren't always exactly the same thing. But whatever. I guess that never comes up. God is adamant in Jeremiah 29. Absolutely adamant that his people are going to remain as slaves in a faraway land for the next few generations. But no, no one ever said anything about not being blessed. Those aren't, those aren't necessarily in conflict with each other. What if it's actually possible for both of those things to be happening in the same moment? In fact, he's already promised precisely that. And it's found in the word welfare. Welfare as a word carries all kinds of good connotations, right? We, we think of it in good ways in English. But the Hebrew here in Jeremiah 29 is actually a little different. Some of your translations may say peace and prosperity. Especially you have an NIV. And that's because in Jeremiah 29, the word welfare is the word shalom in the Hebrew. Shalom. One of the most ubiquitous words. Does anybody in here not know what shalom means? It means peace, right? Shalom means peace. Yeah, woo, we get that. It's everywhere. We've heard that before. Yeah. It's one of the most ubiquitous things of our culture, but the reality is that the word peace is actually far too small for what's going on here, at least in English, at least in our culture. See, for us, the word peace is a neutral word. It's what we, it's what we give as a title to things that are in a normal state when there aren't bad things acting against it. It's the absence of conflict to us, right? It's, it's a stasis when the bad things aren't happening anymore and we can go back to normal. That for us is the word peace. It's a neutral word. But in Hebrew, the word shalom is not neutral. It's an active word. It's an active word. It's not the absence of conflict. It's, it's more about the active working of good. It's a, it's a restful good. And that's why the NIV puts 
peace and prosperity there. They, they needed the two words to use it. That's why the translators of the ESV use the word welfare. Because if they had just used the word peace, us in our westernized Americanness, we would have read it as, oh, okay, okay. So what we need to do is just put our head down and put in our time. Don't rock the boat. Don't, don't extend ourselves anything. Don't stir the pot. Just put in your time, put in your share, and we'll all be fine. Let's, let's just endure this for whatever season we have to, and then it'll all be over soon. For us, that's what we hear when we hear peace. That's not shalom. So the translators of the ESV said, you know what, we need a, we need a weightier word here. Welfare. Shalom is not avoiding conflict. It's actively working for good, for welfare. And through Jeremiah, God tells his people living in exile, no, plant yourself there. Seek the welfare of those that I've placed you near. That's his command to them. Settle in, make yourself at home, and be an agent of shalom in your community. That's God's command for his people while they're in a distant land as slaves. If you're wondering, this is exactly why we're doing a block party Wednesday night. Exactly why we're doing a block party Wednesday night. It's not to, to endear ourselves to people. It's not to, to promote ourselves in any way. No, sometimes you just need to do something that serves and builds up your community. And Wednesday night, we have an incredible opportunity to do exactly that. To seek the welfare of the city where I have put you. Wednesday night's going to give us a chance to walk in obedience to an incredibly good thing. But I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying, though, because it would be wrong for us to try and say that we don't get anything out of this deal. What does verse 7 say? Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, comma, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, comma, for in its welfare you will find what? Your welfare. We get something out of this deal. In its peace and prosperity, you will find your own peace and prosperity. So you may be wondering to yourself, well, how does that make sense? How in the world does an enslaved people far from home experience such an otherworldly peace? Surely. Surely that must be too hard to fathom. Why? It must even surpass all understanding. Those of you who know your Bible well know the, where the answer is found, right? Philippians chapter 4 clues us in. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in the city of Philippi, says this, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All right, so the writer of this letter, the Apostle Paul, understood persecution, experienced it firsthand, lived it out. He's literally in jail as he's writing this letter. Paul understands persecution. Paul also understands God's sovereignty. Every time Paul needs something, God just kind of shows off and shows up. God understands God's sovereignty. Paul understands God's provision. But Paul also understands God's presence. He deeply understands God's presence. See, for the apostle Paul, you could, you could literally take everything else away from him and just leave him with Jesus and he'd be okay. He'd be just fine. In fact, he says exactly that a couple of times. 
It's not here. It's not because peace here is some alien emotion that ignores the circumstances going on around you. It's because Paul gets to be with Jesus, and when you get to be with Jesus, everything else is fine. You'll survive. You're okay. That's blessed. So Paul here, he says, don't be anxious about anything. Let your request be made known to the God who graciously provides everything, and then just sit back and let him guard your heart for whatever he brings. And that reality is no different for exiles living far away in Babylon. A slave in a faraway land can say the exact same thing that Paul said, as long as I've got God, I'm okay. I'm set, to use the New England phrase. It's a peace that the rest of the world doesn't know how to process because they don't see his goodness yet. It's beyond understanding. The wonderful blessing that God will provide to his people while they are in exile is not at all what the world would usually immediately think of as a blessing. But hear me, it's way better. It's better than and more valuable than anything they could ever imagine in this world because in that season of pain and longing, in that God-given experience of dark nights and lonely, long days, God's people will be forced to quit clinging to the things that they thought could save them, that they thought would bring them satisfaction. In that season, God will remove their hands from this functional Savior and that functional Savior, and he will, they will once again find their identity in the in rest, the only one who can actually be that Savior. They'll get God and they'll be okay because they will once again have the only thing they actually need. Well, that sounds great, Stephen. But it's like 1040 and we haven't gotten to our theme verse for the morning yet. Where does that come into play? Let's look at it. Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Here's our theme verse, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So not only does, is God present during their times of trial, not only is He pleased to give us more and more of Himself as we let go of the other things that we cling to, uh, not only is He pleased to give us more and more of Himself through the long, painful, sorrowful days, but He is also, also the God who redeems His people and will one day bring them home. They're, they will not be in Babylon forever. He does have plans for your peace. He does have plans for your future and your hope. They are far, far, hear me, far bigger than any earthly blessing could ever live up to. I don't think Jeremiah 29, 11 means what people who put it on hammers thinks it means. God's desire for you, Christian, is to bring you home. Home. From all the places that he's scattered us. 
He has promised to do exactly that. The season of exile is not over. There is divine purpose in the pain, but soon, the God who always keeps his promises says, soon, I will bring you home. And so the question that must be asked this morning is actually really simple. Are you you a part of his people? Or are you a part of Babylon watching it all play out? See, the Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are all by default separated from a holy God. Separated from Him. Our sin deserves to be punished by He who is eternally, infinitely just. And He will not fail in His moral obligation to carry that out. But God is also the great justifier. He makes a way where there was no way. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that you and I are not capable of living. And He died a sacrificial death on the cross in our place to make payment for sin. And reconciliation with God is on the table for all those who will repent of their sin and in faith call on Jesus as Lord. God's people, according to the Bible, are those who have trusted in the finished work of Jesus on their behalf. So I'll ask again, are you a part of God's people or are you one of the Babylonians living in the midst of God's people while they're far away from home? We want to give you the opportunity to respond to him this morning. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll be up front here if you want somebody to walk you through what that looks like, what that means. If you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, you can respond to God's word today too. And you do that by pressing in, by repenting of sin and leaning into to, to the God who loves you and calls you to himself. And listen, he has, he has plans for you far beyond even your best wishes. Far beyond. But the question remains for the follower of Jesus. Like, what, what do you ultimately put your hope in in this world? Like, what do, you, what do you ultimately wish that he would give to you, offer to you? What if? What, what if he took all those things away and just gave you himself? Would you legitimately look, look upon that as a blessing from the Lord? A great plan for your hope and your future. Would you consider that a wonderful plan for your life? Would you slap that verse on a hammer then? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. What is God calling you to respond to this morning? But let's all respond to his word. Father, you are good and you are big and you love us with a great love. And there are seasons that that I've got ideas about what my greatest good is. And I've got ideas and plans and theories about what you're doing here and what you're doing there and what you ought to do everywhere else. Sometimes the most valuable thing you can do in my heart is rip my hands away from the thing that's hurting me so that I can only cling to you. And so maybe you give me dark days sometimes so I'll lean in rather than away. You have such an amazing plan for my future, for my hope, 
for my welfare, my prosperity, my peace. But all of those things find their greatest end in your face. And the day that I get to see it with my own eyes will be the greatest day in my life. Regardless of whatever else may be there or not. Incline my heart to you. Help me see your goodness rather than love good things from you. You are good. Save people today. Draw people into your kingdom. With those who know you, repent and lean in. With those who don't yet, would you make yourself known? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.